Support for the podcast comes from Canva. Presenting to a group of your colleagues can be nerve-wracking, so why not ease some of that anxiety with Canva? Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and that's it. You're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com, designed for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. If you're a small business owner, you know that it isn't just your business, it's your life. And whatever your business might be, you want someone who understands. That's why you might want to check out State Farm Small Business Insurance. Why? Because State Farm agents are small business owners too, living and working in your community. That means they know what it takes to help you personalize your policies for your small business needs. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. Talk to your local agent today. Hey everybody, it's Neil I from The Vergecast. On this week's interview episode, we have Mike Isaac. He's a reporter at The New York Times. He's been covering Uber for five years. He just wrote a book about Uber called Super Pumped. It is basically the history of Uber's founding, where it came from, how Travis Kalanick and his co-founders got the idea, how they built the company, the very peculiar set of morals and values they instilled the company with to achieve growth at all costs. And then obviously, it's extraordinarily tumultuous. 2017, which saw Kalanick get ousted, new CEO come in, and basically the entire company fall apart and get rebuilt. It's an absolutely tremendous book. Mike did hundreds of interviews with hundreds of people. It's extremely deeply reported. He probably knows more about Uber than anybody. We talked about how Uber got to where it is, whether you have to be a jerk to start a company that changes the world the way that Uber changed the world. That's a really difficult question. You can see that Mike is really thinking about it after having written this book. And Uber's interactions with some big companies like Apple and Google, which are far more contentious uh, than I think I even ever expected. Check it out. This is Mike Isaac. He's the author of Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber. All right, Mike Isaac is here. Welcome, Mike. Hey, thanks for having me. So you have written a book. <laughs> Ostensibly, I, I have written a book. Uh, it's right here. It's called Super Pumped, The Battle for Uber. Yep. It's no lie to say that, uh, the book is extraordinarily well received. It's, it's extremely deeply reported. Mm. I think I was reading the, the sort of end of it. It's like 200 interviews or something yeah. crazy. Yeah. Extremely deeply reported on the sort of rise and fall, not of necessarily Uber itself, which continues and seems we, we got to talk about where it's going. Yep. But particularly of Uber's founder and CEO, Travis Kalanick. Uh, who is, I think, a parable for the entire tech industry of that moment. Right before we started taping, we were discussing 2014, which is like when a lot of things went down. Yep. It seems like a different universe than now. So many things have changed. I mean, I remember, yeah, I started the beat in 2014 when I joined the Times. I was part of Recode, which is now part of Vox. Uh, but uh, it was... This sort of drumbeat where every other week or month they were raising another billion dollars as a private company. It seemed like they were kind of unstoppable in their trudge across the globe. And they, they just seemed like a real, real different company than they than they do now. And I don't know if that was if that's just perception versus like the reality of what they are, you know, or if the the market conditions have really changed, maybe a little bit of both. But yeah, it's like now they're today, I think, uh, before I walked in here, the stock price was at a record low or something. And, and um, the yeah, book came out. Yeah. Well, <laughs> congratulations. Take, yeah, God, I'm sorry. I don't want to take credit <laughs> for that. But it definitely, they just seem more vulnerable now than they did four or five years ago. And four or five years ago, it really was. They were taking on billions of dollars in venture capital money 
and that money was earmarked. Go lose this money to build your monopoly, and then you'll you'll own the world, and we'll we'll have the monopoly, and we'll just charge monopoly prices to everyone. <laughs> and it'll be fine. I mean, that was like it was pretty naked. Well, the the thesis I think back then, which you know doesn't sound completely unreasonable, was look, we're going to build this huge war chest and raise ultimately. I think it was over ten billion dollars in private capital. And we're going to just charge headlong into all these markets before governments can stop us, before transportation officials can stop us, before competitors can really, like, get in our way. And the advantage we will have, and Travis used to say this internally or something like this, is like this capital advantage against everyone else. And for a while, I think that worked. And I kind of maybe believed it worked. And other folks were just like, okay, you know, the investors sort of believed it worked. And then things really changed beyond, like, the gnarliness of Uber's 2017 and like a zillion different scandals. The funding environment changed. Like SoftBank entered the picture with their like $100 billion vision fund that they can swing around and do whatever they want with. The rise of competitors in different countries really changed the environment. Uber was not on home territory in Southeast Asia when they were fighting some places like Gojek is, I think, a competitor of theirs. So it really, a lot more competitors with a lot more money than they expected came up almost overnight. And then 2017 just was like the cherry on the crap cake where they just <laughs> got their asses kicked for a full year. So let's start at the start. I think the narrative of Uber, particularly for listeners, the Verchast is pretty well familiar, but let's take it from sort of like a a meta direction. You set out to write this book. How do you decide where to start telling the story of Uber? What was the frame that you were thinking of? Yeah, I think the reason I chose Uber was less about the company and more about what kind of what you were talking about, this parable for tech in general. And I think Early, maybe let's say 10 or 15 years ago, I think tech was viewed with a more optimistic lens through everyone kind of adjacent to it and in it, right? Like I think you and I wrote stories about Facebook back then that would be probably very different than than we do now, right? It's very true. <laughs> and, I, and I've looked at that arc as it happened. And, and I, I think back then, like folks didn't really have a grasp on how transformative some of these things they were building were and are. And only now are we sort of catching up to the idea that tech really does undergird pretty much every part of the world around us and, and can change, you know, cultures if you if you have like a disinformation campaign in Myanmar, right? Or they can uh, result in driver deaths in Brazil if you barrel into a new country with just sort of unfettered growth as your directive, right? So I think back then it wasn't really the negative consequences of tech wasn't like top of mind. And that is also when Travis sort of as a serial entrepreneur started his third startup with a few other folks and, and jumped into Uber. And it really was a different type of business where it wasn't just them building a software business. It was a transportation company that really capitalized on, on the iPhone and the Android and the iPhone. And so from there, you know, without the sort of tech lash that we're going in right now, they were able to really expand very rapidly. I think not much of the sort of tech bad behavior had been surfaced quite yet. And I think Travis sort of became over time the poster child for the bad boy of tech or like this is like the tech, you know, whether you believe he deserves it or not, the tech bro that is sort of a caricature of how valley folks think of some valley engineers and valley types. And so I think his standing in and Uber standing in for the shining example of what can go wrong in in tech with hubris and like obscene wealth and growth at all costs made the company and the characters a lot more interesting for me. So let's talk about Travis. I mean, he's very clearly the main character of your book. 
it seems as though he was paranoid early on, driven to grow yep. at all costs, made a number of questionable decisions. But I get the sense, having furiously read the book to prepare for this interview, <laughs> that you have like a kind of a grudging respect for him. Absolutely. I think the thing that I feel grateful for even was to take – I mean, look, I, he could become an easy caricature of like a bad guy, right? And like in 2017 when all of the – when all this shit was going down, he was like basically an evil cartoon character. And I was given the space in this book to just sort of flesh him out as more than a two-dimensional character. He's he's a human being, right? And he has motivations. And I wanted to dig into what makes someone, you know, after I talked to a billion VCs and all these different folks who were around him, like they would all say the same thing. I've never met anyone as driven or hard charging or whatever in my entire career as I have with this guy. And for whatever faults you see in him or for the the reasons that that eventually was his undoing, it was still like he was a unique entrepreneur, right? And he was willing to sort of go as far as he could in many situations and and really grew this company from nothing uh, from the early days. So I definitely respect him in the sense that like he built this enterprise when – it was it just it didn't exist, you know, and that's still a question people have, like, could it have been done if it wasn't for him? I mean, I think that's kind of the big question raised uh, throughout the book, which is Uber is it should exist. Like I, I use Uber. Sure. Right. Like it it seems like a very natural thing to exist. Yep. Taxi dispatch is something should can and should be automated. They went ahead and automated. They took a lot. They cut a lot of corners along the way. Yep. And I think one of the sort of big valley questions to this day is, do you need to be that kind of founder to will this kind of company into existence? Absolutely. It's, do you, yeah, like the, I put it less uh, colorfully, but like, do you, or I put it more colorfully and somewhere else, but it was just, do you have to be a jerk to build a world-changing company, right? And and I don't know if you have to be a jerk to build a world-changing company, but you might have had to be a jerk to build an Uber, you know, just because, like, think of the barriers to entry in the taxi and transportation industry and how those differ from, say, a software business like Facebook, right? Now, Mark Zuckerberg has made his fair share of enemies over the years, but um, he doesn't have people, or he didn't, at least early on. (laughs) I I was going to say, maybe not now, but at least earlier on, he didn't have, like, mob boss mafioso types ready to, like, break his legs for entering their market or whatever. So it definitely, it was a harder industry from the outset, and I think it took. I think that took its toll on Travis's mind, along with uh, I talk a little bit about in the, the book the sense of distrust that he has for really anyone around him from being spurned uh, by venture capitalists early on in his career. So I want to talk about three kind of big moments with Uber that you you have built out beautifully in the book, but I, I want to unpack them a little bit. The first, obviously, is Susan Fowler. Mm. That seemed to be the breaking point in which the company's culture just caught up with it. Susan Fowler publishes her blog post, says it's been a weird year at Uber, lays out the litany of harassment she faced, reporting to HR. There's functionally no HR, even though Uber is like a big company worth billions of dollars. And she's out, right? And she says, this was this was a horrible year. It seemed like, A, that had a breaking point for Uber. It led to a much greater sense of uh, consequences throughout the valley. Yep. But that, that seems like the moment where a lot of things crystallized. It was definitely, I mean, if you can remember back in, back in 2017, this was pre- Harvey Weinstein. This was pre like Me Too getting a real lift from uh, the Times breaking the the Weinstein stuff, and it was also right after Trump had taken uh, the presidency, and there were a lot of just sort of forces happening, forces sort of like crystallizing that I think 
we're waiting for some sort of breaking point in in many different industries, not just in, I mean, like in, you know, they broke this open in the entertainment industry and then it just sort of launched into a huge movement, right? And I also, in the book, I talk a little bit about how I think this nebulous feeling of like tech might not be good for us was sort of made more concrete in the idea that, oh, did Facebook influence the election? And to this day, we still don't know to what degree, if any, you know, these things changed how people voted or whatever. But it was this nebulous thought that, oh, well, you know, Mark Zuckerberg is asleep at the wheel and now, we, you know, Russians are manipulating us or this tech bro is running this company and women are being rampantly harassed and the misogyny is ruling the roost, right? And I, and I think Susan, to her credit, like she, I imagine, had no idea what she was going to set off with this blog post, but she presses publish in, in February and all of this pent up frustration, anger internally for things that uh, that many employees had felt just was sort of like a dam bursting moment. And I was telling someone else, like, once you lose your employees inside of the company, then you're really screwed because you can you can do all these fights outside and say, like, hunger down, we're, the press is against us or whatever. But when your own people are revolting, you're in trouble. And they all start, they all start calling you. Yeah, that's right. I mean, that's that's the moment that journalists love. <laughs> so that blog post is published, and then there's you described already a year of pain. Mm. And what's really interesting to me, a lot of the early parts of the book uh, lay out how little trust Travis Kalanick has in investors and VCs. He says they're always out for themselves, and he constructs the company of all this power, and he gets ousted anyway. Walk us through that. Yeah. So for a long time, you know, Travis in his early days had these issues with um, VCs, how they how they treated him. And just very early on, he was burned by uh, an early relationship with a, an investor. And he kind of swore to himself he was just not going to be put in an advan- a position we take advantage of again. So he built in protections over the years that cemented his control over his company. I think the real coup for him was when they raised $3.5 billion from the Saudi uh, Public Investment Fund, he also added the ability to give himself additional board seats to essentially place puppets in these seats that would vote for him whenever he wanted. And you know, any logical investor uh, that was on the board of the company would probably bristle when you give unfettered access to or unfettered control of, of the entity to the, this founder who may make a bad decision or whatever, you know, but one of the themes that I sort of hammer on in the book is this idea that founder worship always brings about this sort of like cult-like mentality of the founder knows what he's doing, so we should let him be in full control. And, you know, Zuckerberg built this world-changing company and Larry and Sergey are billionaires 10 times over or whatever. So, you know, the cult of the founder is a good thing. And, you know, Travis, again, like the sort of like overarching point is that Travis would represent the worst version of that scenario playing out if you give the founder control and you want to oust him and he's uh, unable to let go of his company. But um, he makes sure that if anyone's going to take him out of the company, he's not going to go without a fight. And that's ultimately what happens. It was quite a fight. <laughs> so <laughs> very public. Very, very public. Um, actually, you bring in the book, you mentioned the, the gold room a couple times, which <laughs> is a gentleman's entertainment club in San Francisco. <laughs> and the night before you broke the story... Have I ever told you this before? I don't know. The night before Were you, you in the gold club? I was not in the gold club. <laughs> okay. Uh, the night before you, you broke the story in the Times, Travis was leaving, mm-hmm. I received from like 15 jobs ago yeah. a text. Hey, my friend is a dancer at the gold club. She says, Travis is out tomorrow. What? And there's like, there's no way to follow, like, no way to follow that up. Whoa. 
and like I was like, what do I do with this information? Oh my gosh. It was an absolutely wild moment. Whoa. Oh my god, no, I hit what that I is. should I can't believe I've never told you that <laughs> And I was like, well, I was just gonna wait for Mike. <laughs> like, That's beautiful. Wow. It was like very late. Anybody would have talked to us was done. I was like, I'll just wait. Like literally that was the reaction that we had. Like, well, it's gonna happen, but we can't run. We can't run that. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Right, totally. And then the next morning, I was like, oh, there it is. <laughs> wow. But that's the culture, right? I mean, that's for, for me to get that twisted source of information, uh, that there's only one kind of company culture that allows <laughs> that to happen. So that's the year. But even though he built, he'd built in all those protections, he did get ousted. Yeah, you know, a lot of things led to – so the, it ultimately came down to this thing where – I go into it in pretty great detail in the book, but essentially like – his own people kind of turn against him and and sort of vow to launch a campaign against the guy and and say and this is I inadvertently become a character in the book just because it was very weird to report it out in retrospect and realize that I was being used as like a weapon against Travis but like essentially like threaten the guy and say you know you better step down or we're going to take this fight out into the public and and so or after like a year of being beaten down brutally and some other sort of like really tragic things happening in his life, he he does step down of his own accord, and almost immediately though he he is he sees how he's betrayed and then starts to fight back up again and it goes through like close to the the end of the year. So I wonder if things had gone differently if he would have um, stayed CEO because it really would have been very very difficult if not impossible just very difficult to remove him without him doing so himself. But I think it was just the sustained beating he took and the loss of friends and family around him to to really get to that point where he, he decided to step down. Well, because the obvious parallel is Facebook, right, where every every year the shareholders vote to change Mark Zuckerberg's power structure yep. or uh, – I mean, and the, the margins are quite high, right? Like massive numbers of Facebook shareholders are like, just be the chairman, change the, the stock structure – and he's he always he has more votes. Yep. And it, it's there's a very obvious parallel here. And you're saying unless he decides to do it himself, it's almost impossible. Yeah, that's the thing. I mean, the this this is where it gets like finance wonky. But like this this dual class stockholder structure that was really was not invented by, but really um, championed by Sergey and um, Larry in when they took Google public. Really, just essentially hands all the power to the founders. And, you know, the idea of a shareholder is just is just bogus. It's like they, they might have a say, but the founders can do what they want. And like in the in the best possible version of that scenario, you could maybe look like Google or Facebook before 2016 or 2017 <laughs> and everyone decided that they're the worst companies in the world. Um, and and that's, you know, like I, I, I really do. I also live in San Francisco and like I'm constantly surrounded by um just real chest beating and championing of these like figureheads at these companies. And, and I just really wanted to show like, look, this is not like being a founder is not the platonic ideal of capitalism. Things can go <laughs> wrong. You know, like this, things are bad sometimes. And this is also not to say that I don't think Uber did a lot of things really well and that Travis was a, a someone to be admired in, in his own twisted way, I guess, you know, like it, I think he has some, very redeeming qualities that keep people around him uh, attached to him and, and appreciating him. But I still think it's just worth exploring what can go wrong when everything does. Support for this podcast comes from Canva. They say Rome wasn't built in a day, but you know what you can get built in a day? Your creative deck. You can generate creative decks to use for all your important presentations 
with Canva. Thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. You want a sales presentation for a tech company? Done. Create an employee onboarding plan? No problem. Just type it in and watch Canva work its magic. You'll have generated options in seconds. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver at work. So whatever you do at your job, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. It's AI for every department. It's easy to learn. It's even easier to use. And because it's built in Canva presentations, you can stay focused on the task at hand with no app switching. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Design for work. This episode is brought to you by State Farm. You've heard it before. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. But it's more than just a tagline. Because State Farm agents are small business owners themselves who live and work in your community. And if you're in the market for small business insurance, who better to work with than an agent who understands what it takes? State Farm agents can help you create a personalized insurance plan that fits your small business needs and budget. Talk to your local State Farm agent today about small business insurance. Like a good neighbor, State Farm is there. So two more things I want to, two more scenes, mm-hmm. conflicts I want to I want to dig into. We talk a lot on this show about the App Store and the overwhelming amount of power that Apple has. Totally. You have a couple scenes where Travis goes and meets with Eddie Q and Tim Cook and knows basically his business is on the line. Yep. Because he's, Uber has done like some shady things. That, I don't think people really get a sense that Apple can just destroy billion dollar companies. Absolutely. I mean, that's really, I remember when I found out this anecdote through uh, back well, in. Tell the story. Well, yeah. So basically, Uber runs afoul of Apple's App Store rules by sort of skirting some of the privacy guidelines they have. And like Uber had a, a case to do for what it did, right? Like Uber was dealing with huge amounts of fraud in China and other places. And Apple didn't have a very, you know, a great way of helping to prevent that fraud. So Uber kind of took a shortcut and uh, did this, which, which is... <laughs> if only you could see is, Mike's face. Right now. <laughs> He's like the one of many shortcuts that Uber takes. Exactly. And to make a long story short, it ended up biting them, coming back to them, because Apple found out that, that Uber was skirting some of its rules around privacy and, and what's called fingerprinting iPhones. And so there's this dramatic meeting with um, Eddie Q, and then later another one with Eddie and Tim, uh, where essentially they say, like, straighten up or we'll boot you from the app store. And I mean, that's, that is business killing, right? Like at that, for a lot of Uber's life, it was an iPhone only app. And then later, you know, it moved out to other, other, to Android. But like, like if you lose iPhone customers who are, you know, who spend more money on average, um, it's, it's company crippling business killing. And it's really interesting now to think about it in the age of antitrust and anti-competitive action. I mean, that's, I'm sure where you were going with this, but like, it's just sort of like, when you come back at the end of the day, like to look at who has power and control, and I think even other companies like Facebook would probably point towards Apple and Google and the the vast amount of power they have with what apps win and what apps lose. It's pretty freaky. You're kind of playing in these companies, you know, pools and and have to make them happy and keep that relationship good. And ultimately, the companies themselves do have some leverage because 
people like Uber and use Uber and Apple can threaten Uber to take them down. But at the same time, people will still be mad if they're like, why did Apple take this app down? I love this app, blah, blah, blah. So there is a power dynamic, but it's still, you know, Apple and Google are 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 the ones who make the rules in the end of the day. Well, what struck me about that scene is that it's the one time you describe Kalanick as being contrite. <laughs> yeah. And that, to Once me, life. it's like the one. And he's like, I know that I have to get this right. And he's like, I won. Mm-hmm. By apologizing, I won. Mm-hmm. And that's that's remarkable. Uh, at the same time, it's like Apple does have a privacy policy. Yeah, totally. I mean, like, look, I, I think there's a case for both parties here. I think they ultimately, um, what I was told is they ultimately got to a place where they found a solution to help stop fraud without, like, I think I think Uber's engineers and some of Apple's engineers built some, worked together to build something. So they got to a better place on that. And, like, ideally, that's where you net out. But it's really, um, Apple's fascinating, too, because it's just sort of like a Byzantine, like, law book that where things get made up as as the world moves on and this stuff sort of is invented. New apps are even invented. Well, it's every one of these companies is building a new legal system around itself, right? Like they're all replacing some piece of actual society. <laughs> Apple's like, we've got a court that lets you get into the market. Right. Facebook's like, literally, like we're starting a court. Uh, and Uber's like, <laughs> oh, we yeah. are we are now the bus, right? Like it's like, <laughs> you guys know, it's just, this you is just, know. we're starting a country. Um, and the other one I want really wanted to talk about is Google. And the relationship between Google and Uber mm. is very complicated. They were an investor, and then there was obviously the big lawsuit. What did you discover as you were reporting out that relationship? So it was really interesting when I got to go to cover the court case when Uber uh, was eventually sued by Waymo and hear Travis deliver testimony. But it was, I think, going in, Travis, so Travis, you know, to predicate this, uh, Travis took on $250 million from investment from GV, Google Ventures, which is Google's investment arm for startups. From the outset, I think Travis had a different understanding of what that meant. He thought, okay, I've got Google money now. I'm untouchable. They're going to make me a king in this space. And because they've invested in me, I'm awesome. And I think Google had a very different idea of this. You know, like, first of all, they go to great lengths now to caution people, you know, we are not a part of Google. We, we're an independent arm, and just because you have our backing doesn't mean that Larry Page at the end of the day is going to, like, support you and champion you or whatever. And so eventually it got to a point where Travis realized, like, this is going to – we're going to crash into each other if we're – what is the logical endpoint of a taxi service, is, and that's automating it, right? And Google, you know, Larry Page in particular, had been working on uh, self-driving cars for years at that point. So – they were frenemies until they were enemies. And I think ultimately it ended very poorly, obviously. Um, uh, Waymo believed, at least, that uh, one of its former engineers, Anthony Lewandowski, stole IP, trade secrets, brought it over to Uber, uh, sued Uber over that for theft of trade secrets. That ended up settling. But it was just sort of a case study in how the incestuousness of the valley can end up working against you at times. And I think for Travis, it felt like a real betrayal and an, and an eye-opening moment of, oh, God, the – what is the analogy I'm looking for? Fox. It, yeah, yeah, Fox is in the house there. Yeah, exactly, actually. I think one of the Apple executives might have used that analogy at one point. But, like, they, there was a point in which – and I think I put this out in the book is, – is, like, they kind of say, like, what, you know, Google's on your board. David Drummond is on your board. Are you not worried about that? And I don't think Travis was worried about it until it was too late and really – figured, oh, okay, well, 
now I'm going to have to compete with my own backers. So it ended spectacularly poorly for, for all of them. <laughs> um, Uber in court said famously, the only thing we have to show for Anthony Lewandowski is this lawsuit, basically. They yeah. ended up net negative, and it set them back probably a lot. Yeah, we had Sarah Jong on our team when that lawsuit oh, I love, was going. Love she, Sarah. Sarah's now at the, at the Times. Um, I remember she— Oh, yeah, she was there. She, she was, was there. Covering it. She was covering the hell out of that case. And, uh, <laughs> she beat me. We were talking about it every day because it was— you know, This is a case that famously gave the world the phrase, the laser is the sauce. <laughs> Which I, like Sarah and I, I literally, as I was reading your book, I just texted Sarah, the laser and sauce, because it was like all we said to each other. We were just, we were just saying that with different inflections to communicate for like a week. Um, oh, God. And uh, Google's case is pretty bad. Yeah. yeah. And I remember she wrote a post being like, this case is actually pretty bad. And they settled the next morning. Uh, and it, I think this, a lot of this comes down to, and I think, you know, we cover consumer tech. Like, here's the product. You're looking at it. The True. new iPhone's coming out. This, Screens this big, and it's pretty divorced from the personalities of the people. Mm -hmm. And these big companies are really big. They're very good at crafting sort of forward-facing personalities. And you're like, oh, they just hated each other. And they, like, made Mike and Sarah sit in a courtroom for a while over a case that was fundamentally pretty bad. They just didn't like each other. And there's, like, a deep strain of actual human being personality issues underneath these companies. What's the thing, as, you, as you're writing the book, like, what's the thing – that you like learn the most about these folks? Mm, I, I wonder, I think the, the, the question that I keep coming away from is like, what does it take to build a great company? Do you have to be ruthless? Do you have to exist? Is it like luck and timing? You know, like a lot of, a lot of the stars aligned, you know, Travis, you know, has his strengths and a lot of folks still wonder if could they have built Uber without Travis. But like a lot of the stars, and I get into this in the book, a lot of the stars really aligned to make Uber what it was during the time it was. You know, there were there were lesser apps that kind of did the same thing that were around at the same time. But I think ubiquity of internet and the, the advent of the iPhone, AWS becoming like a thing, like it just really took a lot of um, stars aligning to, to make this happen. So I think there's a part of, part of it is luck and then part of it's timing and then part of it is, and this is the question I wonder, is like, do you just have to be a, a ruthless jerk or can you be a nice company builder, <laughs> you know? And like, like, I mean, I think about Steve Jobs. I think about, you know, what Larry and Sergey were like. I think about uh, Zuckerberg and his sort of, Zuckerberg is a ruthless businessman. I know that um, firsthand. And so I wonder if that's just the laws of business, you know, and maybe, maybe Uber, you know, maybe, maybe Uber had the unfortunate position of being like the poster child of all the crappy things that one has to do or might, or one can get caught doing on the way to building like a huge company. But I would like to think that you can build something worthwhile and not be a jerk when you're doing it. So this uh, uh, brings us to the new CEO, Dara. Mm -hmm. How's Dara doing? I mean, because he was installed as the nice one, right, 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 the dad of Silicon Valley. Yeah, <laughs> like he's he's the polite one. He like got rid of like the bro code that like Uber had. Like mm -hmm. he's rebooted the company. Mm -hmm. Super pumped is no longer a value. <laughs> it's, uh, <laughs> I have to explain to people what super pumped mean a lot of the times. It's really just, oh god, <laughs> um, it is a great. It's a great title though. <laughs> it's um, a, it is a fantastic <laughs> title. Um, but no, I think look, I, this is the funny sort of irony about the whole thing is now people are kind of weirdly pining for the fire that Travis brought. And this is the credit I'll give him all day long is like he instilled 
a real loyalty, real sort of sense of, of duty and purpose in the folks that were there. Um, I think Dara was absolutely the right sort of temperament to right the ship when the building was on fire or whatever mixed metaphor you want to use because like <laughs> there was like so much going on in 2017 that went wrong and just having someone that felt like a grown-up in the room was great and the question mark uh for some now is like okay great he's like whatever he's tamped down the emergency mode and now we need to prove that we can be the next amazon of transportation as they like to say and that's just they have to prove it, you know, and that's they they have bets out, right? They're doing food delivery. They have scooters and things. Payments is actually going to be a next thing that they're they're keeping close to the vest right now. But it's going to be a thing. But it's still TBD. You know, I still think it's it's too early. If you're if you're looking at becoming a platform and being moving just beyond this core ride hailing business, it's too early to say whether they're going to make it well or not. Well, that's the next big question, right? So there's like the the WeWork IPO a yeah. couple weeks ago and everyone everyone just looked at it. I mean, it's we we talked about it on this show. I'm sure you no tech reporter could resist tweeting oh about God. it. It's like the most fanciful IPO <laughs> document in history. It like begins with a prayer. It's like so out of control. Um love it. But like everyone sees it for what it is, right? This is a, a real estate company using some tech language to mask an upside-down business model. Mm. A lot of that thinking seems to be applied to Uber lately, right? We're going to front a, a ton of cash to build some monopoly position and then literally like charge rent. It's Uber, mm. more, more or less. Yeah. But, like, but it's like more useful. <laughs> no, it's like, yeah, no. Well, like that's the, the difficulty of having a commodity uh, service too, I think, right? Like I think the, the real part – that's difficult is like they don't enjoy the same advantages of like network effects that a Facebook does or, or uh, you know, other businesses that really thrive on the bigger we are, the better we are, I think, in, in, the, in the exact same way. And the cost of switching is so low and like Lyft's network is big enough that they or, you know, if you go to China, Didi's network is big enough or uh, Ola in India, like they, there's just – the friction between switching services is not high enough to keep people in that universe. So they need to add more things in that, whether it's, again, like if it's food, they're doing like loyalty programs. It's kind of like airlines back in the day. Like, yeah. you know, like it's just sort of people are very price sensitive. So what's going to keep you here? And for airlines, at least a lot of it was like brand and perks. And if your brand is in the toilet, then you have a big problem. Right? Yeah. So. I don't know. I mean, I'm still – I'm looking at this. Uber has like gold and platinum and Uber cash. Oh, I don't take more than things. a couple of Ubers a week and I'm like – the uh, Uber just Super like gold bestows man. status to me left and right. <laughs> it's like hilarious. That compelling? Yeah. I mean, I keep using <laughs> yeah, it. Yeah, there you go. Well, maybe yeah. maybe it'll work. I, yeah. I don't, I don't know. Like I really do think – what I wonder is like do they have enough time to prove it out in the next, you know, however many years or months or whatever before – the street gets agitating for for change before their burn rate catches up. To yeah, them. right. Yeah, I think the number is five billion dollars a quarter they're losing. That was a lot. There was it was there were some one time charges to be fair, but it was there's the losses are are still crazy. Yeah. So what's next for Uber? Oh man. Um, and really, what's next for next for my guys? Oh God. <laughs> <Are> they, <laughs> these two fates are intertwined. <laughs> I hope not. <laughs> oh God. I I hope this is I hope this is it. <laughs> the book. The the thing that I do feel really happy about is like capturing this specific moment in time for the valley and what 
tech means to people, what it's going to mean in the future. The other thing I like thinking about a lot is like tech is not going away. It's not like not like not like we've had a reckoning and we're going to just go full Luddite and start torching everything. I mean, not that I've seen so far. So like what is the way in which we live ethically, responsibly, you know, with tech ingrained into every part of our society, which it already is, right? What do we start looking back on and and say, hey, I am okay with this or I'm not okay with this or this is part of the value proposition of advertising that is fine by me, but this this part of tracking or whatever I'm not cool with, you know? I yeah. think people are like starting to actually ask those questions. And and I think it's gonna go far beyond Uber. I think it's gonna be, you know, important for our industry, for uh, so, you have, so for media, for social media, for all sorts of different realms. So that's what most interests me now is just how we live in a post-Techlash society while not, you know, sort of like going full prepper and living in a bunker underground. I will say the prepper thing is very tempting to me. <laughs> yeah, I mean, every time I'm upstate and like go to the grocery store, I'm like, I'm going to buy like three to four prepper magazines. It. Oh my God. It's fine. It's in a real worries. whiplash reading a prepper magazine. <laughs> we got to hang out. Yeah. Well, actually, that's, that's kind of my last question. Yeah. A lot of the Uber story was an end run around regulation, mm. right? The regulations are ready for us. We don't think they're they're appropriate. They're just in our way. We can just show up in Portland and yep. and we'll make people love us and then you're screwed yep. and now you have to deal with us. Yep. We're definitely in the regulation moment. Yep. Right? The government has noticed that tech companies exist. And that I mean, even you know, on, on sort of the left, you have Elizabeth Warren saying, We're gonna break you all up. Yep. And on the right, you have Josh Hawley being like, I'm gonna ban autoplay video on your phone. <laughs> like this is a wide spectrum and there's an ideological realignment. Is Uber just entrenched enough to to navigate it now? Mm. The only thing I think they're really uh, – they should be kind of worried about is like uh, attacks at their labor model. You saw um, Buttigieg the other day in San Francisco show up and say, we want these drivers to be employees. And and that's obviously politically savvy of him. But it's also like like there are bills in California that are sort of pushing that as well right now. So there are things there they need to worry about. I do think they have enough lobbyists that they're they're not going to go anywhere. It's It's just more – what is a is that future going to look like for them, and and are they going to get any sort of unduly harsh rules uh, that might hamper their business model even more? All right, Mike, thank you so much for coming. Super pumped! The battle for Uber is out now. <laughs> you can buy it from Amazon, which is another tech monopoly, <laughs> and support your local bookseller. That's Where right. can they find you? Where can they tweet at you? Uh, get me at, at Mike Isaac I S A A C on Twitter or Mike underscore Isaac I S A A C on Instagram because someone stole my name on Instagram. Wow, that's <laughs> the next book. There it is. Thanks, man. All right, thanks, Mike. All right, my thank you to Mike Isaac. You can go buy the book out in the world. It's Super Pump, the Battle for Uber. We are at the Apple event this week. It's coming right up. It's iPhone time. So we'll see you on the chat show this week to wrap up Apple. I love to hear from you. Tweet at me. I'm at Reckless. Would love to know who you want me to interview next, what themes you want me to cover. I love all that feedback. Hit me up. We'll see you later this week with the chat show. Thanks to Canva for their support. Canva wants to make your presentations come as easy as those thoughts that pass through your head. And thanks to their AI, you can start with a simple prompt and watch Canva go to work. Choose your favorite style, customize the content, and you're done. It's a serious time saver. Whatever you do for work, Canva presentations can give you a head start on your deck. You can generate sales presentations, marketing decks, HR onboarding plans, you name it. Finish your deck faster. Generate slides in seconds with Canva presentations at canva.com. Designed for work.